Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Jesus, our producer Bernard's been getting on with it. This is fantastic. I know this is amazing. We are we are lifting the quality of the show here on on the Hoon. It's going to be quite a um, uh, a show because we've we're going to have Josie Pagani and Robert Patman on early today together from five twenty. We've also got Catherine Dyer talking about. The you know client. what's going to happen is that if we're not careful, they're going to spin off and run their own bloody podcast. You know, we're going to spawn their podcast. It'll be like bloody. You know, Alistair uh, Campbell and um, Rory Stewart, they'll just spin off their own podcast. But the original's always the best. It's like That's all those spin offs from friends. They never really worked, did they? I, do, can um, I just tell you? I'm one of those people who I don't think I've ever watched an episode of Friends, certainly not from start to finish. Yeah, I, I got into it, um, particularly with my daughters. They really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And they're, 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 um, they're only, you know, in their 20s, and there's a whole sort of second wave of fans of it, I yeah, think. Yeah, no, I know, particularly since What's-His-Name died. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, I think this is the original, the 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 goat, as they call it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's a little tight. We, actually, we should, do a, we should do a goat podcast, actually. Not, this, not literally about mm. goats, but about the greatest things of all time. Whatever they are, but I think I think we have some way to go to make this into into a goat podcast, Bernard. I mean, I'm very grateful to our audience, and of course, we we have a poll to ask our audience because you're going to do it anyway. I know, but should, do you want to ask the audience about the thing that you're suggesting? Yes, in the spirit of RMA consultation, I am uh, really keen to record the hoon to have it live on a Thursday at five o'clock instead of a Friday. I think that the work week is being pulled forward and also... Your work week or everybody else's? Everyone else's. This is my Mm -hmm. contention. Certainly for people working in offices these days, they often don't come in for the Friday. You often see them on the Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday now. And also, I am very keen to stop sending people emails on weekends. Uh, I'd also like to sleep in on Saturday, and and so. But Bernard, um, how are you going to maintain the kaka as a as a sort of hot news thing? You're going to have to delegate it to me for those hours when you're not in not away. Well, you can have it if you like. <laughs> so I'll make sure everyone gets plenty of notice, and of course, uh, it means too that we'll be able to have the recorded version of the Hoon out on a Friday morning. Mm-hmm. So plenty, a bit more time on Fridays and Saturdays for people to listen to it. And I hear often from people when I do get it out a little bit later on a Saturday, or even shockingly a Sunday, a lot of people complain. You know, hey, that was my Saturday morning walk. Well, we'll make sure it's it's out in time for your maybe have a walk on a Friday as well. I, I just worry sometimes that we, we it, it, it might end up that we, with the three of us, have a um, have a sort of three day weekend, and that you know I go off fishing on Friday mornings instead of reading sixty three items, you know, of news, Ooh. so that I'm up, up with the news for the well for the who you know, at a five the, o'clock on a Friday evening. The whole four day four day work week is a real thing. It is uh, making us all uh, healthier and and uh, more productive. It seems, and yep. uh, I'm I'm keen to try to do that. I'm heading very fast towards a no-day work week, which is slightly worrying. I'm, 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 I'm hoping that somebody's going to give me a universal base, basic income soon, or a universal bail income, as I see it myself. Ah, oh yes, very good. Uh, no, certainly, I'm keen to do that, and I appreciate the support of all of the subscribers. Uh, I've sort of floated it with subscribers this morning uh, in the dawn chorus, and I got some great feedback, and I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm I would. Work pretty, pretty, pretty hard, and um, I'm I'm really glad that I can uh, maybe take a few hours off on a Friday too. So that's um, that's good. Oh, this is good. We're getting lots of people on the on YouTube saying saying that they endorse that. That's that's fantastic. Oh, and Bernard, I did a little Bernard Hickey this morning. I got up at three o'clock in the morning to do a um, two and a half hour, three hour webinar with a whole bunch of people, including the new chief executive of the Washington Post, at uh, oh. three o'clock to six thirty this morning. So. I now know who how you live, you mm. know. But I tell you what, in order to do it, I have to go to bed pretty bloody early the night before. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I've worked out that I can if I have a little snooze in the middle of the day, an hour or so, that helps. 
and mm. just getting to bed early. Do you think we need to? Do you think we need to add a sort of middle-aged men give you their give you their life tips for fitness? You know how how I turned my um, sagging belly into a six pack, or used a six pack to turn yeah, my well, turn to, my belly into a sagging one. Yeah, no, I I think not. Is the short answer because we'd have to have done that, and I don't think we have, but we will uh, work on it. Um, uh, so this week. Plenty of life being lived uh, in the negotiations between the government, which haven't yielded a government at oh. uh, pixel time, as they say. Uh, no yeah. government. In fact, we discovered this week on Monday that they hadn't even met. <laughs> the three of them hadn't mm. met in the same place mm. since the election, which was a, a month and a day ago. Does that sound to you like a suspiciously Winston tactic? To be hard to play hard yeah, to get. He does. He does. I mean, I don't particularly want to find him, but he does play hard to get, doesn't he? Yeah, and he doesn't have a lot of leverage, to be frank. And he's got to create some, mm. however he can. And um, extending the deadline, as we all know in negotiations, you know, one way to exercise leverage is to refuse to do something until the last minute. And by by mm -hmm. delaying things, you effectively uh, squeeze down on your opponent and. Christopher Luxon got a real hammering in the in the from the commentariat in this morning's uh, media, mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting that Tova O'Brien asked some pretty awkward questions of him uh, earlier today about his experience in MNA. He's going to get quite a rude awakening, I think, to just how brutal some of this is actually in reality. Uh, you know, because mm. he's he's trying to do this whole I'm a CEO thing and I've done brilliant negotiations, but. He hasn't really. When push comes to shove, he hasn't really. When you look at the deal that was done uh, in New Zealand, essentially it was cancelling a deal, actually. Uh, in New Zealand mm. had an alliance with Virgin and he uh, shut it down. Now, that may well have been the right thing to do. Um, is, that his big, is that his greatest achievement? As a CEO, yeah. Uh, he has done yeah. deals with Unilever, but, I mean, Unilever buying brands I mean, they do that every second day, and it's what mm. happens when you create an FMCG brand. You you wait to get acquired. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure that they're the most complicated high-stakes negotiations in the business world. No, exactly. Exactly. Well, he can wash he can wash his hands of Unilever. Yeah. But do <laughs> that's a that's a good one. So no no deal as we speak, and um, this is becoming really awkward for the government because well we don't have a government. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, Christopher Luxon had hoped to go to the Pacific Islands Forum. He wasn't there. There was Caramel Brownlee instead, and uh, it it's it got awkward. And of course, APEC is starting today without Christopher Luxon. We have Damien O'Connor mm. representing New Zealand, yeah. and who, um, I'm sure Biden has just walked up to him and said, "Damo, mate." Damn, mate. Yeah. Um, let's yeah. let's um, let's go let's go white baiting on west on the west coast. Yeah, exactly. Damn. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's it's been a, a rough week for Christopher Luxon, and he'd have to be hoping that by Sunday he's got something in the bag. Otherwise, this pressure suddenly he's going to he's going to see how hard it is when you don't quite get it right. Yeah. So, all right. What what before before we go to Catherine and and, and get all gloomy about the environment as well, because there's not a hell of a lot to be positive about. But oh, I can be excited about the environment. What, where would you where would you put the chances of a, of another election um, before the end of next year? Incredibly low, because just the mere fact of having to go back to an election would immediately take at least five percentage points off national and everyone mm -hmm. else. And it, there would be a real risk that New Zealand first, who was seen as um, holding everyone up, they're like the, the guy who doesn't arrive to get the party started, they lose yep. 1%. And that's enough to go below 5% threshold, and it's all on. Well, that's all right, isn't it? And then we get the actual coalition of green chaos, which actually might not be so chaotic. Yeah, uh, yeah, but that's not how Christopher Luxon will see it. So he will do everything he can to avoid that. And so will, so I think, will mm. Winston Peters, because they both have a lot to lose. Well, when, when, when Josie comes in and we, and we get towards the end, I, I, mm. I definitely want to talk this issue through with you, please, Bernard, about the Treaty of Waitangi, because I, I, just, I find yeah. myself increasingly concerned, despite being a Pakeha and, and a deracinated New, deracinated New Zealander, when I hear David Seymour talking about this and and Winston it really concerns me that they're going to you know try and turn the clock back 10 or 15 20 years and it's I think that's quite dangerous speaking of turning yeah, the it's... clocks back here's Catherine mm, oh we're, we're lucky to have Catherine on today um by the way a great new innovation for the Kaka today we've put out Catherine's first weekly uh, climate roundup 
It's been a big hit. Lots of people have been reading it. And for some of the things that we've talked about here, you can go and read a lot more detail and hear a little uh, discussion that Catherine and I have had. And one of the reasons that the lack of a government is a problem for the government is that it can't really respond when it's criticised or when people say Mm. something. And the opposition can't really get involved either. But what we're seeing now is into the vacuum, people are starting to say interesting things, like uh, a couple of the Pacific Island leaders at the Pacific Islands Mm. Forum coming out and calling on National to not restart exploration for oil and gas. Catherine, um, what did you make of, of that over the last week or so? I mean, it's great to see a little pressure coming on from the from the Pacific region. There's actually a group of six um, Pacific nations that put out what was called the Port Vila call for a just transition to a fossil-free Pacific in March. And so they were really hoping that the Pacific region could kind of spearhead a commitment to kind of a, a global phase-out of coal, oil and gas. And so that was kind of what they went into the PIF with. And of course, it's been watered down in the statement that's come out from the Pacific Islands Forum itself because of New Zealand and Australia, of course. But yeah, I mean, this has always been a call from them to have, they want New Zealand and Australia to just be on their side and, you know, from the climate point of view. And from their point of view, they actually now have some leverage because suddenly Australia and New Zealand and the United States have woken up to the fact that the Pacific is a big part of this, this new great game uh, between our the big powers, uh, China is very keen to get involved and uh, help out, find some new friends, and the Pacific are going, hey, China's committing to reducing emissions. Um, they're not mucking around. And uh, by the way, they've got a lot of solar panels they're <laughs> sending us for cheap. Uh, um, how about you actually do what you say you're going to do about phasing out emissions? And Australia in particular is quite vulnerable here. They're obviously a huge exporter of coal and oil and gas, uh, an awful lot of LNG, and of course an awful lot of methane that comes out of that. And we'll, it'll be interesting to see whether National follows through on this oil and gas promise. That is exactly what we need to create, though, Bernard, as, a, as an export market for methane. We'd be, we'd be tickety-boo if we had that. Oh, yes, if we could <laughs> I, like your, I like your thinking there. <laughs> LNG is yeah, basically yeah. methane, so yeah. there is an export methane. market there. Mm, excellent. You just yeah, yeah. have to be able to bottle it. I like this kind of innovative thinking. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, the, the pressure is on, and the, the longer uh, the, the vacuum is there, the more pressure that, that there will go on. Uh, the second thing that I thought that was interesting this week, Catherine, was uh, a paper that's come out from the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, Simon Upton, in, mm. in which uh, he has said that uh, after some quite substantial research, new research by NIWA, it turns out there's an awful lot of carbon being held underwater on the seafloor in New Zealand's pretty massive economic zone. He said, yeah. Tell us about this paper. Yeah, i got to say the PCE do some really great work, some some good research and, and, you know, on information like this. And this is one of them. It's just, it's really classic. NIWA did the research and they were looking at... Um, Carbon, what was stored in sediments of carbon in, in the in the sea, and they found a whole lot of it in the in New Zealand's EEZ or Exclusive Economic Zone, mm. which is huge by anybody's standards. New Zealand's territorial waters, um, and it, they said it represented something like one percent of global stocks of of carbon, and this is the stuff that potentially could um, sit there for millions of years um, into the future as as a storage, but it's at risk by, by human activities. And in particular, they were talking about bottom trawling, fishing. Mm. Um, so Stirring it all up. Something, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think one of the good things from this piece of research is if you can identify the really significant places where there's a lot of this carbon stored, then you can then you can devise policy to be able to work around those, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that they're not disturbed by um, seabed mining and trawling. Mm. And, and it makes it even more important, therefore, that we protect that EEZ. You know, there's an awful lot of um, trawlers uh, that go in there without a lot of monitoring. Sometimes they turn off their beepers. China um, has a pretty awful track record in parts of the Pacific, uh, strip mining, so to speak, various fishing stocks. Soon to be followed by literal strip mining on the, on yeah. the ocean floor. Wow, yeah. that's the other thing. And certainly, I think... Um, avoiding the sort of seabed mining which has been talked about. And this will be a hot topic now for the new government because they're quite keen on this sort of thing. 
um, mm. particularly off the coast of Taranaki. There was something I saw a couple of weeks ago about a guy who was working with AI and robotics to invent this machine that would sort of float along above the sea floor and has little clippers, arms that would just go and pick up these um, potato-shaped nodules Excellent. off the, the ground. The magnesium nodules. What a very yeah. good idea. I don't know how, you know, like obviously there's a lot of impact assessment to be done, but if it can yeah. do what he's promising, it's actually pretty exciting and cool. <laughs> but you can imagine, I mean, their, their reference to mining and everything, you can imagine Waihi, you can imagine the Firth mm. of Thames. Um, conceivably even parts of, of Otago coming back to gold mining and various minerals. I, I don't really know what the geology is. Do you know, Catherine, about, about the geology of New Zealand from a um, rare earths point of view? I, I suspect that rare earths tend to come from much older geological places than New Zealand. But, you know, maybe maybe we do need to dig up a bit more. I think the, the Kermadec Trench, I think, is... Yeah. It's- potentially yep. a, a spot for that. But they actually found in this marine sediments study that NIWA did that the area around Fiordland in particular and the area in the Firth of Thames around that area are particularly significant areas for this carbon in the sediments. Oh, really? So those would be areas that you'd actually want to protect. Yeah. Yeah. C- Catherine, there was another story this week that, that I, was, I wanted to ask you about because I, I found it quite intriguing because it sort of brings together, you know, as you know, there's often a sort of weird conflation about pollution and climate change. And this was a, a, a study reported in The Guardian about microplastics uh, being found in clouds, and which which may be one of the reasons it's been detected at the highest possible altitudes in, in you know, in, in, in icy ice and mountains and so on, but that it's also that the presence of um, sufficient microplastics is creating a kind of aerosol, which is leading to climatic change as well. Have there been any studies, as far as you know, about microplastics in New Zealand? Um, I don't know. I know that they've found microplastics like in the Antarctic and, and in all mm. of these, you know, they're, they're literally everywhere. And there are, you know, all sorts of concerns about what they do in terms of endocrine disruptors as well. Like they could be mm, things that mm. um, affect fertility, not just of humans, but all species. So yeah, a lot of a lot of concerns, but I, ha- I hadn't heard that one about them being in the clouds and actually contributing to climate change. I mean, well, that's, you know, all of these things cross over, you know, at some point yes. when you do, when you start yes. to do the research. Yeah. Well, the good, th- the good thing is that we know Christopher Luxon does his recycling. So we're, that's all right. Yes, that's yeah. good. Um, and But there is some good news to end on in our climate segment uh, with um, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping at meeting this week. I mean, it's great that they're meeting full stop um, and not firing things at each other. Uh, but secondly, they are making some agreements on uh, the climate. And of course, the, China and the United States are the two biggest emitters. Catherine, what did we learn ab- about how China and the United States might work together, at least on this? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a really positive thing, at least about COP28, that it's actually mm. forcing this kind of communication and cooperation that had been, you know, put on the shelf for the last year or so. So that's a really good sign. And they're talking about a commitment to tripling um, global renewable energy capacity by 2030. So, and China is a leader in that. So, um, you know, there is a lot to be gained there. I mean, it's probably. It could be a lot better, but it also that's a really positive sign. So, yeah, no, it's it's been a um, uh, a good week on that front, and also with Xi Jinping and Joe Biden talking about reducing fentanyl supply from from China, and and also looking to uh, maximise supply of solar panels and various other things. That's all aside from the from the matters of. Uh, chip supply and rare earth supply and and the competition that's going on there. But um, Catherine, lovely to have you on. Thank you very much for coming onto the show. And just a reminder Thank for, you. for those people who, who are looking for a bit more, uh, we have a weekly wrap up of the climate news that Catherine uh, does. And we, we had a chat about that this morning. You can find that on the Kaka that's gone out to all subscribers, both paying and non-paying. We're very proud to do it. Thank you, Catherine. All right. See you all next week. Professor Patman, there you are. You handsome devil. Hello, how are you? Very good, thank you. All the better, all the better for seeing you. And we're very lucky too to have Josie Pagani uh, on with us and fresh off the plane, perhaps from the Pacific Islands Forum. Is that right, Josie? Yes, yeah. Just just got back a couple of days ago, and um, 
it was yeah, very interesting week, wandering around in the middle of the chaos of the biggest uh, Pacific Island Forum ever. Josie, I was really interested in your, your comment this week about treating the Pacific countries as partners and not beneficiaries. And I was immediately struck, of course, by the remark uh, by Barry Soper's wife um, that uh, they were, in fact, cockroaches. Was it cockroaches, Bernard? Oh, Pacific countries were le- cockroaches. Le- she said leeches. Leeches. I do apologise. Yes. I got my. I got the wrong. Yeah. To be fair to her, though, Peter, what what she was talking about was that, and I think you know, if you look at the polling of New Zealand public, they don't feel that aid is very effective in the Pacific, and so therefore, you know, they feel like it's a waste of money. So she was talking about it in the context of that. It was very a bad choice of words. Sorry, this is Heather Duplessis Allen. I just remembered mm. it. Yep. Heather Duplessis Allen. So, so, yeah, it was a, a bad choice of words. But you were mm. making this point about about not seeing them as beneficiaries, um, Josie, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. Would you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, nobody talking about what the New Zealand public think about aid. You know, mm. the the support for aid has dropped from about a high of seventy percent to you know roughly fifty below fifty percent. Um, and so that's not that New Zealanders are ungenerous. It's that they're looking at aid in the Pacific and going, what difference is it making? You know, and, mm-hmm. and so the point I was making about that was that no one um, wants to be, you know, wants to wean themselves off dependency on aid more than the Pacific. You know, so <laughs> you, you could double the amount of uh, cynicism that New Zealanders might have about the effectiveness of our aid, um, and and that would give you a, a, a good um, analysis of how the Pacific feel about it too. Yeah. So the point mm. I was making was that there's there's um, yeah we we tend to think that the best ideas are going to come from us because we're development specialists, but actually the best ideas are going to come from the Pacific, and not just on economic development and how to lift people out of poverty in the Pacific, but also how to navigate some of the um, geopolitical competition that we're seeing at the moment. I mean, the Pacific, mm. I mean, Rambuka, the, the Prime Minister of, of Fiji, I heard him say quite recently, we, we, we're we really good at this. We've been doing this for many, many, many years. Just look at the Second World War. It, it's not the first time that we've been the focus of big geopolitical struggles. And you know, we, we've got some really good experience and ideas about how you navigate this. So, that's more a partnership than thinking with a sort of slightly tilted head of compassion that we're yeah. here to help the Pacific and they're recipients of our largesse. Well, Robert, are we are we recognising this, Robert? Is, is the Pacific genuinely being taken more seriously? I think so. And I think, uh, I mean, very interested in what Josie's got to say. Uh, I, it seems to me that many, and maybe Josie can react to this, because I, my sense is that many of the Pacific Island states do not buy into the paradigm of US-China rivalry determining the future of the region and the world. And uh, it seems to me that uh, they are determined not to be a pawn in the strategic, someone mm-hmm. else's strategic game. Uh, they will certainly take advantage of the uh, rivalry, and for many of them are micro-states. And yeah. it seems from, from their point of view, you know, this, this rivalry may in some sense be welcome because... It means that the United States, Australia, and New Zealand largely had the show to themselves for much of the post-45 period. China's now uh, competing in earnest, and uh, this gives up new options. So it's a very interesting situation. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think sometimes there is a a tendency in Washington and perhaps Australia, and maybe in this country, to – you know, believe that our relationship with the Pacific is a bit of a one-way street. Mm. Whereas I think, I know we discussed this before, but I think Pacific Island states jealously guard their state sovereignty and also do expect reciprocity uh, in terms of the relationships. Yeah, I, I, there are two things that stood out to me. One was that it's clear that the Pacific is, um, and I I called it kind of crawling out from under other people's stories about it. So our story about the Pacific has been that, you know, this is our backyard and we, we you know, we look after the people in our backyard. Well, no one wants to live in the backyard. And <laughs> they're going, we're not your backyard. Um, you know, we've got our own house, thank you very much. But but then you've got um, China 
it, the story that China tells about the Pacific is that it's trying to liberate, it's, it's liberating the Pacific from Western colonization and the rules-based system and giving you autonomy back because we're not colonized as the other guys are. And then the mm. US's story is we're trying to, to, to protect you from Chinese aggression. <laughs> so the Pacific mm. saying none of those stories are who we are. Um, so you need to start listening to us. And one of the, the story that's coming out from the Pacific very loud and clear is that um, while these are very, very diverse countries, different languages, people look different, um, they've got different cultures, different experiences, but they're saying we know that together, because we're tiny states per population, together we're much stronger. So this idea of a Pacific Union, like a, almost like a Europe, you think about the European Union, you know, we could be one of the biggest players in the world, actually, if we came together as a union. So the the Pacific mm. Island Forum is saying that regional voice is something you're going to have to take notice of mm. and start listening to us. Stop telling us, you know, who we are. Josie, I, I wondered if um, th this deal that was announced at the Pacific Island Forum by Australia with Tuvalu is some sort of uh, model or opportunity to create a type of Schengen-style uh, wider area of economic participation, trade, more free movement of people for all sorts of uh, reasons. There's a lot of frustration, I think, in particular yeah. Fiji has pointed out about the the, the need for um, uh, for visas uh, to travel to other, other places where the uh, reciprocal is not the case for people in Australia mm. and New Zealand to, to go to Fiji. So I wonder, yeah. you know, is, is, there a, is there room for some sort of Schengen-style uh, union? Well, you think about how the EU started. I mean, it started with a deal about on you know, over coal and and mm, and steel, yeah. didn't it? And so, um, uh, this if you remember Pacer Plus, which was announced a couple of years ago, which by all accounts has been completely ineffective. So it was meant to be Pacer Plus was a a kind of development slash trade deal that brought together. Um, you know, a, a number of Pacific countries, not all of them, and Australia and New Zealand, and it was going to help kind of create a trade block, if you like. But it would also have this $20 million development deal, which would help the Pacific build up its customs, its biosecurity, its its regulations and so on. So it could export to Australia and New Zealand more. Um, and it doesn't really appear to have had much of an impact at all. But I think, yeah, that you're absolutely right, Bernard. And Robert, you probably know more about this than me, but there's been this idea of the Pacific Union, like a, a not mm. like an EU model, it would be its own model, but this idea has been around for a long time. And maybe maybe the sort of growing muscle of the Pacific Island Forum, this growing sense of their of their regional voice, maybe this is going to be the beginning of that conversation starting again. And I, I think it would be really amazing to start thinking of the region. I mean, the, the, the barrier to it has always been whether New Zealand and Australia come into an EU-type trade block, freedom of movement, um, freedom of capital. You know, like Australia and New Zealand are going, you know, just in real politique, what's in that for us? So that's the barrier. It's not so much the Pacific, I think, as as um, Australia and New Zealand. I, I think that um, it, it actually, you know, what um, Josie's saying is very interesting because it actually presents uh, the likes of New Zealand and Australia with quite tough choices. They both, I think, in recent years have actually genuinely supported regionalism in the Pacific Island states. Indeed, uh, the former Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, one of her strongest criticisms of the Chinese Solomon Islands deal, um, the base deal, was that it violated the terms of the Pacific Islands Forum, mm. uh, agreed back in, I think it was 1990, when members of the Pacific Island Forum should not actually put together security deals without consulting each other, or words to that effect. What is interesting to me is whether, in fact, if these countries can achieve, uh, if the Pacific Island states can achieve the level of cooperation amongst themselves that they clearly aspire to or want to aspire to, that would mean we would either have to accept that and support it or, you know, resist it. And I think on balance, I think both countries, like, oh, I think New Zealand, I couldn't speak for mm. Australia, but my sense is that New Zealand would probably believe that is actually 
worth accepting because yeah, there's no upside in resisting it. Surely, Robert, there's no upside yes, in, in resisting it. And politics is often about tough choices. And it seems to me that that, uh, on balance, uh, New Zealand can live with regionalism uh, in the Pacific Island states perhaps more comfortably than a state like China. Mm. I, I do love as just a wonderful image because you know these sorts of events in the Pacific are both very formal and um, uh, hierarchical, but they also have a, a, a lovely sort of informality about it because often you know the places are quite small. And so we're in Rarotonga and we're at Trader Jack's, which is where everybody goes because it's you know Winston <laughs> Peters has I think kept the business going over the over the years. <laughs> Um, so everybody turns up at Trader Jack's and we're sitting there, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting around with, you know, Jerry Brownlee and the New Zealand delegation and I was with the Tony Blair Institute and, you know, we, we went there every night because it was nice food. And then one night we turn up, <laughs> there's, you know, Albanese, the Prime Minister of Australia, uh-huh. with, uh, you know, with his delegation, very casual, you know, dressed in jeans and a Pacific shirt and, and they're ordering a, a beer tower, you know, which is sort of, and we're just looking Jesus. at it going, that's just so Aussie, you know, <laughs> yeah. this, this is the Prime Minister. <laughs> Minister and his delegation uh, in Rarotonga, you're ordering a beer tower, all having a great time drinking beer. Mm. Josie, what was the Tony Blair Foundation doing there, or were you were you them? I, so I was with uh, the guy who runs their Singapore office. So so the Tony Blair Institute are reaching out to Pacific governments, and what they do is. It's yeah. I mean, they they do something that donors don't, which is that they work politically. They understand politics, so they'll work with a government and go right. What are your political barriers? You know, who do you need to get on side to get things done? Mm. And their whole thing is to support governments that are doing good stuff to actually deliver. Yeah. So that's so yeah. I was there um, managing meetings with various prime ministers. One of the reasons I think the landscape has shifted under this idea of uh, a more active economic and governmental union in the Pacific is the sheer need for labour. So both Australia and New Zealand are now running record high immigration uh, policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fundamental problem of the last two or three years has been a lack of staff and also wage inflation because of that, which has spilled over into inflation more widely. And uh, we've just had numbers this week showing 118,000 net uh, migration into New Zealand. Australia is doing more than half a million a year at the moment. And uh, one of the interesting things about that Tuvalu deal is that it sees up to 280 people from Tuvalu every year getting full access to Australia. So in in a way, similar to the deal that all New Zealanders got earlier this year when the Australian government said, right, you can come in. You can have full access to our welfare system, our education system, as long as you pay taxes. And I I, I think the thing that's shifted perhaps in the last couple of years, as well as the, the China competition, is the need by Australia and New Zealand to, to just need a lot more labour. And mm. um, the, the ability for people to move back and forth freely, to send money home. Mm. I mean, a lot of the, the capital investment going into the Pacific is coming from people working in Australia and New Zealand, sending money home. The RSC mm. scheme is being expanded in a bipartisan way here and perhaps should be a lot wider. And it's, in Australia. It, yeah. And, and mm. so I think that may be the, the opportunity. Now, how long it lasts, but right now we've got a, an ageing population and the core problem in the political economy as much as the economy is a lack of labour. And often it's, it's labour that can just be thrown in to do the work. It's not necessarily, you know, the highest skilled labour or the, the labour with the, the biggest number of um, letters behind names. It's we need people to do the work and we're willing to pay Australian wages for it. So here's a statistic that I came across the other day that Tonga Tonga has the highest number of PhDs per head of population in the world. Really? Wow. So, you know, there's some highly qualified people yeah. in the Pacific. Yeah. And that's the other point, I think, is mm. that, um, you know, the, there, are, there are political leaders, business leaders, there are um, civil society leaders who've been working internationally in these international forums representing the Pacific, you know, for many, many years and, and really... <laughs> they can teach us a thing or two about how to navigate mm. all of this. And one idea that, that I've been sort of touting and talking to people about is a, uh, the idea of a Pacific Davos, if you like, 
um, but one that we hosted, you know, in our part of the world, not about how do you fix the Pacific, but actually what is the Pacific's perspective, including us and including Australia, what is our perspective Mm. on the world's big wicked problems from climate change Mm. to... Can we all come? Can we all come and get little, you know, little booties for the snow? Yeah, yeah, little bags bags and little booties. And and on that note, one of the really interesting things that's happened this week, I think that might also change the landscape there, is this amazing paper, which you might not have heard about, that came out from NIWA, put out through the Parliamentary Commission for the Environment, looking at the carbon stored on the seafloor in the Pacific, in in particular New Zealand's uh, wider economic zone. Enormous amount, like 1% of all the world's carbon is stored in New Zealand's exclusive economic zone, which can be... uh, Yeah, well, it's stored on the seafloor. It basically... uh, In the mud. It's in in the the mud, essentially. So, Ah. so, but Bernard's Bernard's suggesting that the Tony Blair Foundation fly their lair jets over (laughs) and land in Queenstown (laughs) for the the New Zealand Davos. And I'd I'd bloody love to be there, thank you. Maybe it's an electric canoe. I think, you know, we can we can we can make it. And um but the thing is, the Pacific is going to be one of the places that stores that carbon and or more importantly, make sure it isn't disrupted and 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 lifted up. And that idea that um the Pacific is also one of the solutions to the climate change issues as well as one of the victims is um is something I think that might get a run on. It's the first type of research that's done that. Do you think, Bernard, uh, that uh the, there's a growing awareness amongst the Pacific Island states that climate change is a life and death threat to them, obviously. Mm. And that may be a, a, another factor. We're talking about factors driving this new sense of regionalism. Uh, that may also be a, a factor. And they may also perceive they've got unusual leverage, because, mm. particularly in relation to New Zealand and Australia, because Australia mm. and New Zealand have a big stake in the Pacific Island states getting on top of this problem, ameliorating the effects mm. of climate change. And uh, that may also be an interesting driver of this desire to, you know, uh, accelerate regional cooperation amongst the Pacific Island states. This new sense of leverage in relation to much bigger powers like Australia and New Zealand. That's right, Robert. But there's also uh, some, not not pushback on that, but some desire for for other powers, including us, to listen more closely to what the Pacific's saying. So they're saying, mm. you know, yes, climate change is an existential crisis for us, um, but they're also saying, uh, but listen to what, as you would in New Zealand, what is it that our, we need to deliver to our citizens for them to vote mm. for us? I mean, that, that's where the politics come in. So it's like, mm. you know, that digital connectivity, that's the thing I hear all the time, that if they had better digital connection in the Pacific, in the outer islands, in some of these vulnerable areas, you would have better education digitally, better health, you can do online diagnosis, and you'd have access to other jobs. So Fiji's set up in a, a massive call centre where they've created... Mm an alternative source of revenue, not just for people and families, but the country, um, compared to tourism. Because when COVID happened, mm. no tourism. So Because the time zones of the time zones are actually very good for that in many of those places. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a real need to be... I, I was with a, a um, Tongan friend of mine and, and there was a prime minister, I think it was a, a former Tuvaluan prime minister, this is a while ago, stood up, you know, gave a speech about, you know, the, the world needs to do more about climate change. It was a really good speech. But she took... And he's crying with it. And she turns to me and she says, and everyone's asking why he's the ex-prime minister of Tuvalu. Mm. Because he wasn't delivering on, you know, jobs, health, mm. education, <laughs> digital connectivity. So we've got to be really careful that we don't make the Pacific you know, the only issue in the Pacific climate change because their politicians mm. are having to deal with all this other stuff too. Yeah, development and so on. Robert uh, and, and Josie, may I move the move the subject somewhat to um, Israel Hamas? Uh I did my spin-off thing this week and tried to bring up because it's just it's almost impossible to try to keep up and sort of a fruitless task in a way to try to keep up with which hospital is currently being bombed and how many how many have died so far it just becomes a kind of deathalyzer question um do you see anything Robert coming in the in the news this week you know we've had Blinken getting very firm about Israel not having uh, control over Gaza for the future Real concern coming from Biden, allegedly verbal concern at least coming from Biden about the number of civilian deaths. I, I wonder if we are about to see a ceasefire in the next couple of days. And I was also interested to see how 
pathetic is the wrong word, but how modest the current weapons caches and various bits and pieces that have been found in the Al Shifa hospital are, based on what on what uh, the IDF has shown. It really it wasn't exactly a kind of warren of tunnels and a vast command centre. Yeah, some interesting developments you've identified there, Peter. Um, it seems to me uh, that uh, there is a bit of a shift going on now amongst public opinion in the United States. The Reuters, latest Reuters poll show that support for Israel in the current conflict in the Gaza uh, has actually dropped to about 31%, which is quite low by American mm. standards. Um, and also uh, the support for a ceasefire has grown, uh, according to this poll. So uh, I'm wondering... Uh, there, there is also the frustrations that the Biden administration seems to be experiencing, although these were pretty predictable, actually. Um, yeah. One is that, as you quite rightly say, uh, the administration made it signal to Netanyahu's government that they didn't want a military assault on Al-Shifa, the major hospital in uh, Gaza. And the second thing that the administration has signaled repeatedly is that they believe that it would be a strategic mistake for Israel to reoccupy Gaza. And on mm. both counts, uh, Mr. Netanyahu seems to be uh, listening but not acting on American advice. And uh, I, I get a sense that we've also coupled with, we've had um, uh, indications that the federal bureaucracy in the United States is getting quite impatient. Yes, as well. isn't that interesting? I mean, do you want to explain that? Because it was, you know, Blinken had to essentially talk to the staff of the State Department and say, "Hang on a minute, calm down. We hear you." There was first of all, there was a a, a memo within the State Department, wasn't there, which was authored mm. by two senior Middle Eastern specialists, which basically critiqued Biden's approach to the whole problem quite severely. Uh, said that it was uh, undermining America's reputation in the world and particularly America's support for the rules-based system. Uh, that is, the perception is the global South no longer takes America seriously when it talks about a need for a rules-based order. And secondly, um, they seem to be hinting that Mr. Netanyahu has uh, he's very much his own agenda and he's happy to accept American support I think the thrust of the message was that for a superpower, uh, it should not have its tail wagged, mm. if you see what I mean, the tail wagging the dog. And I think that was one of the underlying points being made. There was also another expression of dissent, and that was that many staffers, uh, I think something like 100 congressional staffers, had a symbolic demonstration of dissent. So there are signs of public opinion. There have been big protests as well, not just in the US, but also in the yep. UK and other European countries, I think politicians in liberal democracies have to take note of this. And it, it does seem to be we're reaching a point. I'm not sure if a ceasefire is imminent, Peter. Uh, another interesting thing is that the the elders, this collection of mm. global leaders, of mm -hmm. which I think Helen Clark is a member, have also recently appealed for uh, a sustained humanitarian truce or a, some sort of ceasefire because of the mounting deaths of innocent people. Yeah, and and of course, you know, in, in in sheer uh volume terms, you know, there's been some extraordinary and rather horrible analyses that people have to do this kind of work, but you know, that the, the number of um civilian deaths and particularly ch um death of children, I mean, it is a very young population in Gaza, but in proportion to other semi-equivalent conflicts, although the thing is you you just don't get conflicts in that same level of super intense urban environments. I think, I mean, the, the problem with, you know, when, when you call for a ceasefire, when we're calling for a ceasefire, it, unless the call is a ceasefire from Hamas as well, then, you know, the problem you're going to have is that there's never going to be, um, there's never going to be the political will amongst Israelis, even those that, that loathe Netanyahu and his government, who, by the way, will have that polling I've seen in Israel is that the popularity of, of, of Netanyahu and the government, they, I mean, it's dropped to an all-time low. They, they will be gone after this war. So you've got to call for, a, it's got to be a call for, for, for Hamas, ceasefire from Hamas or humanitarian yeah. calls from Hamas. Yeah. And then it's got to be, how the hell does Israel decapitate Hamas 
if there is a ceasefire beyond a humanitarian yeah. pause? Mm. You've got to answer that question, right? Yeah, but I think the other argument against the ceasefire also has to be thrashed out a bit because I've heard lots of Hillary Clinton has written a piece in The Atlantic mm. against the ceasefire. But that's mm. based on the assu- shaky assumption that there's a military solution to the threat of Hamas. And um, Hamas is a terrorist organization that's widely disliked and perhaps hated by many Palestinians. At the moment, I, I, I think Hamas is not losing any sleep over the fact that so many innocent Palestinians are mm. dying mm. as a result mm. of the horrendous terrorist attack that they launched against Israel. From their point of view, things are working. Um, but the, there is a wider interest here. Do we Are we held hostage as a world by the fact that Mr. Netanyahu is continuing with a relentless military assault, which is killing lots of innocent people, and Hamas shows no signs of backing down? Do we just say, oh, well, we just have to wait to this played out? Do we just become armchair spectators to the mass slaughter and murder of innocent people? I think the answer is no. Uh, And also, we're not hearing from the Israeli government what is the next step when they conclude their military campaign against Hamas. Mm. uh, Mr. Netanyahu's been a fierce critic. You know, many people forget this, but in 1999, he was quoted, in 2019, he was quoted as saying that Hamas could be a useful actor in denying the Palestinians uh, statehood. It's been a yes. bit of a tactical relationship, and that might explain why Netanyahu was caught cold by the Hamas attack. Yes. Well, you're absolutely right, Robert. I mean, both Hamas and Netanyahu don't support a two-party state, so they they they, they suit each other. The ends, you know, justify the means. Um, but I think you know, there's there's two things surely that we have to look at when you say, "What does the world do?" We can't be armchair spectators. Is you know, it's, it's got to come from uh, Arab countries in the region, from Jordan to Egypt to, um, and beyond, mm, mm. about guaranteeing to the world that the the ideology of Hamas and Hamas as an organisation will be counted, you know, yeah, which if not requires destroyed. Iran so that, as well. It's, there's got to be a, 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 a well, that's never going to happen, is it? That's the problem. Well, and interestingly, I, and though, the, Josie, the former Iranian foreign minister was um, came out this week and said, you know, it warned Iran from stirring this up as well, which is pretty unusual. The, the thing mm. that really worries me, um, Robert, and uh, you know, I'm curious to know what you think about this. I mean. All of these things are connected, right? So you've got Iran, who's giving weapons to the Russians uh, and supporting the Russians in their fight in Ukraine. You've got Iran, you know, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, you know, where they're they're donkey deep in that. Um, You've got North Korea sending weapons by train to Russia. Um, And then you've got Russia hosting Hamas in Moscow, mm. you know, and at some point yeah. you think, are we looking at a small W world war? Like, are we starting to look at these regional um, wars connected? You're quite right. There's plenty of actors taking full advantage upon mm. grievances which centre on the denial of political self-determination for the Palestinians. And, and Hamas are, are very cynical uh, they don't seem to be losing any sleep about the number of people being killed by their actions or as a result of their actions. Uh, m- my concern is that the United States had a wonderful opportunity to drive the need for a Palestinian state after 9-11. Indeed, Mr. Bush made it one of his core objectives after 9-11, but that suddenly got lost. And uh, I'm not hearing from the Israeli government at the moment what their plans are other than reoccupying Gaza. In other words, is Israel serious about having uh, acknowledging the Palestinian right to self-determination? I mean, this is a, a crucial issue. At, at the moment, we're talking about Gaza, but what about the West Bank? 200 people have been killed in the West Bank since uh, the attacks on the 7th of October. Many of them were farmers. Mm. And mm. look at the settlements in the West Bank. Uh, this is the by the way the Palestinian Authority has recognised the existence of Israel and has sought to co- cooperate with it. Is it being better mm. treated? In short, you know, uh, Antonio Guterres had a point, although he was denounced by the Israeli ambassador to the UN, that it didn't come out of a clear blue sky. The fact mm. is, what is giving Hamas leverage 
is the frustration of many Palestinians and the way they're being treated under mm. occupation. So should we not be saying something like, yes, if, if you're the US and, you're, and Biden, and I hope this is happening behind the scenes, but you say, yes, you know, we, we will support your right to self-defence after this hideous attack on October the 7th. And the quid pro quo of that is that you have to guarantee that um, uh, uh, there'll be no more settlements and that you will mm. support the strengthening of the PLO mm. or the PA, that you will not undermine it, <laughs> you will support its its growing strength as an alternative to Hamas. I mean, this, it should be these conditions, right? I, I think so. I think most reasonable people think that, uh, Joseph, including Americans, but it's very difficult to deliver. Every American president, apart from Mr. Trump, have protested against the illegal settlements. Every president since Clinton have protested against the illegal settlements by Israel in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, as well as the control of the Gaza Strip until 2005. But there's been little follow through. Uh, The great leverage America has, of course, is financial. But I think it's very difficult, given the nature of American politics, uh, for presidents to do more than give verbal expressions of their displeasure. Mm. One thing, though, that Biden could do is um, make sure that Netanyahu's off the scene as quick as possible. He can't imagine mm. there's that much support for him either yes. in Israel or in the United States on that. There is I just wanted, polls are terrible. I, yeah. I just wanted to um, uh, pivot back, still on Joe Biden, but this time meeting Xi Jinping in San Francisco. And uh, we talked earlier in our climate section about some some good news there. They're talking to each other, and there's been mm. a couple of uh, deals on the side. Uh, um, uh, Josie, what did you make of the um, the meeting between the two, and uh, what came out of it um, in, in in substance? Yeah, I mean, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't followed the substance of it enough, but symbolically, it's really important that they've met. Um, and this is, I mean, when you think of, you know, our government, Luxon, not being represented at APEC mm. um, at, at that level, I mean, these are the sorts of, you know, if, if these talk fests are going to mean anything, it's often the sort of symbolism of who meets who and, and what the body language is. And then behind the scenes, you can, there's all this other stuff going on as well. So I think it was... Um, a, you know, a pretty important image to see um, Xi Jinping and, and Biden together in the meeting and, you know, um, coming to some sort of agreements. But I, ha- but I haven't followed the substance of it enough, actually. Robert, what do you think? I, I think it's, uh, it is an important meeting because I think, it, I think China is signalling that it wants a, real big, a really big upgrade in the relationship with the United States. And I think... Some cooler heads have prevailed in Beijing. A few years ago, they were talking about America being in uh, inevitable decline. I think they realize that's not going to happen. And I think there's also been a fresh recognition in Beijing that the Chinese economy depends heavily on access to the American market as well as the EU market. And I think there's a reckoning and a recognition that's gone on. Uh, It seems to have been a, a productive meeting. As we've said before, in the Hoon, uh, Biden and Xi Jinping have a long-standing relationship that goes back many years, and there seems to be uh, actually some personal chemistry between them, or at least they like each other. Um, and mm. and, and uh, the meeting went on for four hours. The American side said there was real progress made, uh, and uh, as, as Josie indicated, progress on climate cooperation, which is welcome from two mm. of the biggest emitters of mm. uh, greenhouse gases. But in addition, they've restored military-to-military relations. And China says it wants the United States uh, to be a partner. Uh, And uh, Xi Jinping said something quite interesting. He said the world is big enough, Earth is big enough for both China and the United States to prosper and do well. Yeah, which I I didn't find mm. particularly particularly reassuring actually, because I, I was thinking of the rest of us being completely bloody squeezed out the by those two. That made me feel but, um, profoundly. Unca- it was it was that the world was big enough for two superpowers. It isn't it, it isn't big enough for you know tiny island states like us. 
But one thing I would say um, is that it, it, even this year, beginning of this year, I remember having meetings with Americans visiting New Zealand, and they was they were reporting on this kind of war talk in DC, mm. in Washington, mm. you know, where there was this sort of moral panic about we've got to prepare for war with China, we've got to, you know. So it's the fact that, and that was more, that was really alarming to think that the US was in, in behind the scenes was sort of almost on a war footing, thinking we've got to be ready for this. So it's in that sense, I think it's also a really good sign from the American point of view that they're not in that same space that head do, do we think it's possible that do we think it's possible that she has thought hang on a minute Trump might be even more difficult that's a really good point I think that the Trump factor it may be looming large here they may want to build up Biden a little bit if they can and show that under Biden's leadership the relationship's improving uh, but I think another factor here is the Russian invasion of Ukraine mm-hmm. I think there has always been elements within the Chinese Central Committee have not been happy about Xi Jinping's quite gung-ho support for uh, Putin's invasion. And I think uh, given the fact that this is a conflict that seems to be dragging on uh, with appalling consequences all around, I think that uh, the Chinese leadership may think to themselves, maybe it's better to ha- go back to a much more productive and constructive relationship with the United States rather than trying to take opposite sides in a conflict like this. And uh, I don't know. I just have a feeling there's been a bit of a pra- the pragmatic elements within the Chinese leadership have got the upper hand recently. And that's one of the interesting things there, that, that the pressure is really on G to ensure stability in their economy because in the last six to nine months, there's been a... Um, in a sense, uh, not just an investment strike by foreign investors, but a consumption strike by um, China's own own mm. consumers. And suddenly, um, China is realising that consumers are important in an economy. That's not how they normally do things. Normally, it's, it's all about the investment. But when the consumers are nervous, when they see the bigwigs getting put in prison, when they can see that the foreign investment has dried up, um, it, it really calls into question this sort of social contract between a people who have no democracy but um, have a growing economy. And when the economy's growing slowly, in part because of the tensions between um, China and its biggest customer, then um, you can see where Xi Jinping may be more more, uh, um, keen on uh, on better relations. Um, Although one of the interesting sidelines out of um, the last two or three days on China is that they have come up with a very detailed and hard plan on methane reduction. So one of the things uh, that's come out in the last couple of days is that China says, we care about methane. And from a New Zealand point of view, methane is a big issue for our agricultural sector. Mm. And if uh, New Zealand is going to be continuing to send huge tons and hundreds of thousands of tons of milk powder, which essentially is a bagged form of burning coal and burping methane, um, then there's... This will be this will be an issue for for China to watch out for. Great segue I, um, from the world back to New Zealand. Yeah, <laughs> Bernard, <laughs> and the coalition. We're, yeah, no, no, not. I'm 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 uh, oh, yeah. not there yet. I just checked. I just checked before, and it's still no government. Uh, just finally, though, there is a government of sorts in Jesus the United Kingdom. Bernard. Yeah, this is stretching. Uh, <laughs> you're stretching it. Yeah, go for the human dead cat. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've I've told Dad he can have a go at the skateboarding dog this week. David Cameron is back. Um, I will put the link in the email newsletter, but I don't know if anyone saw Steve Bell, the uh, well-known uh, Guardian cartoonist, who he had a particularly pungent line in cartoons about David Cameron. He always got the sort of well, he squee- he, he he did him as a condom. He was he did him he did him with a condom <laughs> pulled over his pulled over his. You know, just not to go a bit gross on yeah. him, but his his metaphor was a condom pulled over the pasty faced Etonian visage. Yep. Can I can I tell you one quote of of David Cameron though that stood out to me about our coalition negotiations going on so long and you know we're all everyone's having a sort of panic about it. So he was talking about something else entirely, but I, th- I thought it was a really really good quote. He said, "Imagine in 1940 when you know Churchill made the." 
historic decision to fight against Hitler. Now, that decision, which is one of the, he called one of the finest decisions in British history, it took, it actually took them five days of discussion mm. to work out whether they were going to surrender or fight Hitler. Um, and, and you think, imagine if that was now, like every five minutes, you'd have the head of comms coming in, locking at the door, going, Prime Minister, have we decided what we're doing? Are we fighting or surrendering? Yeah. And then yeah. you'd have like someone leaking from inside the, the room, you know, hashtag, um, yeah. let's surrender, going, this is not going well, we're on day three, you know, it's terrible. You know, yeah. you, we never would have, like, decided to fight Hitler if we'd had the same approach to coalition. Jesus, Josie's interrupting your anecdote, Bernard, for God's sake. Go on, I just see if you can do no, it. No, I think I've, this is gonna, it's got... going to be very tricky for you to do. Go on. Sorry. You shut up now, um, Peter. You're interrupting yeah. Bernard. <laughs> Someone has to, Jesus. So, um, David Cameron is back. We never thought we'd see it. And Steve Bell of the Condom cartoon has put out a picture of him with a David Cameron squeezy toy, which he'd had on his desk. He thought he didn't need it anymore, but he's brought it back and he's squeezing David Cameron again in a rubbery, squeaky, squeaky Yeah, that's a disgusting image. (laughs) (laughs) Only in Britain would they bring back someone who's not even an MP as foreign minister. Well, that is the other thing. Unelected prime minister... And someone who wasn't even in Parliament is the Foreign Minister. Yes, I was yeah. just going to say, we now have an unelected Prime Minister and an unelected Foreign foreign Affairs Minister. Thank God for democracy mm. in New Zealand yeah. and a man called Winston. <laughs> <laughs> democracy is so overrated in the UK. The empire strikes back. Yeah. And on that note, lovely to see you all. Thank you very much. Have a great yeah. weekend. Ka Thank you. Anō, everyone. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. See you too. You're both lovely. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.